0: Well, Father, we come before you uh, just grateful that we can assemble here today, that we can all sit in safety and hear your word being preached. Father, help us to be a good steward of this privilege, to take what we learn, apply it to our hearts, and I pray that, Holy Spirit, you'll help us to that end. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the sad news today is that we're wrapping up The book of Ruth. The other sad news today is I'm preaching a genealogy. (laughs) It's not too late to grab some coffee. I kid, I kid. I mean, it's one of those things where when we look at genealogies, sometimes we don't really have um, a, a true understanding of it, right? You're reading through the Bible and the big roadblock is you hit the genealogies with numbers and it's like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do, right? But when you look into a genealogy and let's say it's your genealogy, you might have a different take on it. In fact, I did some research today and discovered an interesting website, Ancestry.com. You guys ever heard of it? So I type in hints. Right, I'm looking up my own name, not yours. Right, it's my time, my sermon, my illustration. I, I got privileges, and I actually uncovered a very interesting story of the hinces And this is what I found: uh, in the 18th century, Catherine the Great, who was ruler of Russia but actually a German-born princess, uh, basically invited German-speaking communities to come move to the unfarmed lands of Russia and cultivate it. And so during this time, the hints, which kind of derives from Heinrich, actually is a shortened form, so Jack and Janet, who knew, right? We're relatives. But uh, they moved to, uh, moved to Russia, and they formed these immigrant communities where they are allowed to farm, also maintain their culture and maintain their language. And so my... Great-grandfather Wilhelm Hintz was born in a town 30 miles north of Moscow, and then he moved south to the Caucasus, where he met and married my great-grandmother, and then they immigrated to the United States in between 1905 and 1906. Now, this is where it gets really fascinating. Are you guys big fans of Fiddler on the Roof, right? Do you know... That took place in Russia. Do you know what year it took place? 1905. That was actually the first Russian revolution. And there were all these factors that kind of built into the tension of that moment. Uh, number one, the, because of some of the pressure of the peasants, the aristocracy parceled out a third of their land and allowed them to farm in small communities. The problem was they didn't have enough land to farm. Uh, they didn't have enough land to provide for their own needs, and so many of the peasants would kind of roam the land looking for work, which explains how great-grandpa Wilhelm ended up in the Caucasus and hiked 1,000 miles to go to this other German-speaking community. Also, because of all the unrest that was leading up to it, they tried to unite the country through a process of uh, Russification, right, which is part of the tension of the Fiddler on the Roof, where they're trying to make the Jews into Russians, well, they tried to do the same thing with the German community. And so all of those currents led to a, um, a revolution that didn't overthrow the monarchy, but created a lot of national tension, which explains why my forebears immigrated to the United States and they settled in Leipzig, North Dakota. Yeah, from one German community to another. Uh, eventually, my great-grandfather, uh, he died, but, and he uh, le- left eight kids. Two of them died uh, around when they were infants, and my grandfather, David Edward Hintz, migrated to uh, Washington State, where he died about five months after my father was born. And so I was kind of disappointed that I don't have any celebrities or famous people in the Hintz family tree but it does tell a story that I come from a line of, of peasant farmers who were willing to move right, from Prussia to Russia to a different place in Russia to the United States to North Dakota to Washington State in search of unused farmland where they can make their, their living. And I think if we were to go back with everyone, I mean, if you go back far enough, unless you're a Native American, you know, there is some story about how you went from either Africa or North America or South America, from that continent to this one, right? Uh, there's a story behind every uh, genealogy. They, they tell a story. And, and what's interesting is as they tell a story, people are drawn to them because what they do and the reason why people think they're so fascinated them with, right now is they, uh, they almost give you a family identity, right? These are my people. And we kind of live in a day and age where where everyone's searching for their own identity, trying to create their own identity. And so being linked to your ancestors might be a way of achieving one. And so when you look at Israel, when they looked at these genealogies, it was a means of finding their place in society. For one, your family ancestry determined where you lived in the promised land. If you are from the tribe of Benjamin, you live in the territory of Benjamin. If you're from the tribe of Judah, you live in the territory of Judah. Your uh, genealogy determined your, your occupation. If you're a Levite, you weren't a landowner, you basically served the worship of Israel. If you're a descendant of Aaron, you're able to work in the tabernacle. If you were a son of Kohath, you helped transport the tabernacle. And if you were the son of Gershon, your specialty was curtain transport, Right? For years, we have transported curtains in this family, and you're going to do the same, but I want to be a doctor. No, you're transporting curtains. That's the way it worked. (laughs) Also, your family lineage determined your place in the kingdom, if you were part of the kingdom. If you couldn't link your name to the genealogy, you were on the outside looking in. And so, all this to say is genealogies tell a story, but they also give place to your identity. Right, we live in a day and age where people are trying to make their own identity. Right? They're trying to define themselves by their preferences. They're trying to define themselves, I don't know, by their uh, diseases, right, or their affliction, or their occupation. Right? We're always trying to define ourselves. Uh, but in the old world, we defined ourselves by who we were related to. Uh, identity was given by the community. So you have the last name Johnson, Davidson. Anderson, right? Who you are related to determine part of your identity. So all that to say, let's look at this genealogy, and what we see is kind of a, we see a story in this genealogy that, believe it or not, impacts us in a very real way and that it impacts our own identity. Now, Ruth 4, 18 through 22, says this. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Now, the climax of the book of Ruth is the birth of Obed. That's when everything ended well. And you would think they would just stop there, but he concludes, the author concludes, with a genealogy. And there's some questions about why does he end with a genealogy? Well, in some ways, this is the epilogue. It's a signal that this story continues. Now, you guys ever heard of the term fan fiction Fan fiction is when people are so deeply enmeshed and involved in the story that they don't want it to end, so they keep on writing it, right? You read through Lord of the Rings, and you start to get depressed when there's 50 pages left. You are already missing the hobbits, and so what you do is you pick up your pen, and you, you write another story about the hobbits and how they took on this person or whatever, and And there's a desire to continue what's going on. And so when you look at the book of Ruth, I know many of you have really loved and cherished this book. There is a desire to see it continue, right? You want to believe that the story is not confined to this time, space, and history. But what we see with the genealogy is that Ruth has a definite impact today in that the story continues to impact your story, right? The Ruth and the lessons of Ruth all that we have heard about uh, hesed love and redemption go forward to today and still impact us in a very real way, which I will explain through this genealogy. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to see three ways that this genealogy expands the story and is part of your story. We'll see that the genealogy points to providence, that the genealogy points to redemption, and that the genealogy points to Christ, right? All of this is a continuity of what we call the meta narrative of Scripture. You ever heard that term, meta narrative? It's like the overarching story of Scripture. You, you might have heard it in four words: creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Right? What we see here is we are in the chapter of redemption and what happened in Ruth has implications for what will happen and has happened to us. So let's look at the genealogy that points to providence. Now, first of all you note, he says, now these are the generations of Perez. I don't want to give some opening thoughts about this uh, genealogy. Number one, it's 10 generations. And if you were to reconcile this with the history books, it's 10 generations over 900 years. So clearly, not every single person that was in the family line is in this genealogy. It's a representative genealogy where they chose 10 names and they gave Boaz the honored place of the seventh name. And so he had his choice of where do you want to start the genealogy? And you would think that he would start with Judah, right? Judah was one of the 12 tribes. Judah is significant because it is prophesied that the scepter will never depart from Judah. A king will come from Judah, but then he starts with Perez. Now, we talked a little bit about Perez, and I'm going to tell you uh, a little version of the story now and then expand on it a little bit later on when he says the the generations of Perez, there is an obvious connection to the Leverate birth of Perez. Now, when Boaz made his public statement that he was going to marry Ruth and be her redeemer and fulfill the Leverate vow, and remember, when you do that, you marry the person and then the first son is given to, in this case, the childless widow. So the son, Obed, would be the legal heir of Naomi and would continue Elimelech and Malon's name, okay? But here, they begin with the generations of Perez, and Perez is the offspring of a levirate marriage, right? You, you have this soap opera that took place in Genesis where Tamar married one of the sons of Judah, heir who died, and so Judah did what the law was supposed to do, gave her Onan to be her new husband to father a new child, and he refused to basically perform his duty, and then he died, and then he said, you wait around here for my youngest son, and then when he gets of age, we'll take care of it but he was going back on his word, and we'll tell you why later on. Well, desperate, Tamar decides that since there are no fertility clinics or other options, that she needed to father a son to continue the line, and so she did what any sensible woman would do, is to dress up like a a harlot and seduce her father-in-law, right? I mean, he can't make that stuff up. (laughs) And here he is beginning this beginning this genealogy, like the, the birth of really an immoral, uh, scandalous, love marriage. And it's really an argument from the lesser to the greater, right? If, if that son, who ended up being a blessing, by the way, because he was the, uh, the patriarch and the father of all the people in this story, if that scandalous, levirate marriage was going to be such a, uh, such a blessing, just imagine what this one would be. One that was not scandalous. Now, as we move on, we see some other names. Uh, You see Hezron, who fathered Ram, uh, who fathered Aminadab, who was the father-in-law of Aaron, by the way. Which meant that he was possibly a participant in the Exodus. We know his son, Nashon, definitely was because he's numbered in, uh, he's actually mentioned in Numbers uh, 1 verse 7. And so here is a guy who basically saw the ten plagues in Egypt, walked through the Red Sea, was assisting Aaron, and did not enter the promised land. And then as we keep on going, we see that uh, he fathered Salmon, who we learn later on married Rahab. Interesting. We'll talk more about her later. And then together they sired Boaz. Now what's interesting is in this genealogy, you would expect that you'd see Malon's name or Elimelech's name, wouldn't you? But that was all legal fiction. They put in Boaz. He receives the honored seventh place. And from Boaz, you go to Obed, to Jesse, to David. Now, in all of this, I I, I think there's a subtle message. Remember the first verse of Ruth in the time of the... Judges. And in the judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, right? And I think that's just a great description of chaos, right? I mean that's that's a, a toddler class without supervision, right? Everyone just does what is right in their, their own eyes. But in the chaos of the judges came a beautiful union that would one day bless all Israel. David is the product of a union of two saints with Ruth and Boaz, but also a couple sinners with Tamar and Perez. Well, Tamar and Judah, right? Sinners and saints come together, and this line that will one day redeem the whole world works its way through. And that's what we see is the providence of God. Now, the Jews believe that the, the act of coming together as husband and wife and producing children was an act of divine providence. That if certain things did not happen, certain people would not exist. Now, as an open, unabashed 80s fan, one of my favorite movies is Back to the Future, which I watch in VidAngel, just so you know. But if you know the plot of the movie, Martin McFly is a teenager in 1986, and he goes back 30 years. And his mother develops, his high school age mother, remember go back 30 years, develops a romantic interest in Martin McFly. And so what he has to do is get his mother to fall out of love with him and in love with his father so that he can live it's pretty dramatic when you put it that way, isn't it? <laughs> and then the high point of the movie, he's—you know, they're having this dance and there needs to be this first kiss where they fall in love. And, and what Marty is noticing is that the picture of his sister and his brother, they're all disappearing from existence. And he is almost a goner as the father wimps out and allows somebody to cut in on him. And then in this climactic moment, which has caused grown women to weep <laughs> in the theater, he comes back. And just plants one on her and he springs back to life, saving the future, right? I mean theoretically, if you wanted to disrupt human history, the future could send some sort of robot back in time and off-key people to make the future that they want. There could be a movie franchise about that. <laughs> right? I mean you mess you mess with genealogies, right? What would it happen if Wilhelm, did not move to the Caucasus. I'm a goner. I won't be here. What would have happened if Onan would have did his duty and lived? Perez would not have been born, right? What would have happened if Ruth and Boaz did not come together? There would be no Obed, right? It's almost like all of our existence. Like you go down the family tree, and you realize that if any one of those combinations did not meet together, you're toast. And yet, do you believe that God foreknew you before the creation of the world? That he planned that you would exist? How did he do that? Right, genealogies, when you look at it, they point to the providence of God, God working in history to make sure that the people that he wants to create are created and when you look at the story of Ruth and Boaz they come together in some awful situations to have a beautiful union in the words of Genesis 50:20 as for you you meant evil against me but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today like even some of the unholy unions you look at i don't know Tamar dressing up as a prostitute. You look at uh, David himself who murdered Uriah to take Bathsheba and who is Solomon's mother? Bathsheba. God is able to use even these wicked unions to produce good. I remember when I was uh, in junior high track. I was training for the mile, which meant I only ran one mile, and then just took breaks the rest of the time. I wasn't very good, don't know why. And uh, as I'm just standing there, I, I felt this whoosh right there. And then I realized when I saw one of our junior high female discus throwers do this, that I was nearly impaled by a discus. Nate, Jake, thank God that never happened, right? <laughs> but here we have Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning and, my, and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish my purpose. Our genealogies point to the providence of God. God bends all these things to make sure that Obed is born so that he can continue the story. And the story is one of redemption, and that's what we see too, is that the genealogy points to redemption. And I want to mention three names that are not necessarily explicitly mentioned in this genealogy, but if you fast forward to Matthew chapter 1, you basically see the order of names that we see here in this genealogy is copied and pasted into Matthew, but there's three additional names. The first one is Tamar. The second is Rahab. And the third is Ruth. They all are mentioned by name. And and there's a reason because they draw attention to the unusual birth of everyone. Now, you look at Tamar. Tamar was a Canaanite woman, right? Her husband died, then her brother-in-law died. And then Judah said, I think Tamar's cursed, so I don't want to give her my youngest son because he might die. And so she does dress up like a temple prostitute and Judah indulges that but as payment, he says, I'll give you a goat and she says, how do I know you're going to give me a goat? Well, I'll give you my, you know, these personal tokens that clearly identify him. He basically gives her his driver's license and passport, right? Bad idea, by the way, on a number of levels. And so he finds out that she's pregnant And he wants to burn her alive. But then she furnishes the personal tokens and says, the guy who gave me this passport and this driver's license did this to me. Do you know him? Do you know him? And yeah, it was me. His conscience and her cunning saved her from certain death. To a certain extent, she was redeemed. Now you go from somebody who acted like a prostitute to somebody who was a prostitute in Rahab. You know the story of Rahab? The Israelites sent some spies because they're about to take the promised land. They were having great success in doing so. And so they come to Jericho, the impenetrable city, and they spy out the land and they run into Rahab and they're on the run as the The king is trying to find them and kill them and destroy them and save a city. And Rahab gives them shelter. And this is how she explains it. In Joshua 2, 9 through 11, I know that the Lord has given you the land and the the fear of the Lord has fallen upon us and that all of the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the fear of the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Right, that's an incredible statement for a pagan prostitute. And Hebrews gives us some commentary on this, explains what's really going on here. Hebrews 11.31, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Basically, she had faith. And this pagan prostitute ended up marrying a man named Salmon. I mean, isn't that a story of redemption? This time, redemption by faith. And then you think about Ruth, a Moabite woman who had no future, who did, in an act of incredible Hesed love, followed her mother-in-law to a land that was not her home. She said, your home will be my home. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your gods will be my gods. She basically got up seeking to harvest food to provide. And in that act of love met another man who also had the same Hesed love, and together they came together. And not only was Ruth redeemed from starvation, impoverishment, and a lifetime of shame, they redeemed Naomi as well. So in all of this, you see this, this theme of redemption. That redeeming people gave birth eventually to the Redeemer. The very people that would look to Jesus one day for eventual redemption experienced the redemption provided by Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our last point, that genealogy points to God's Redeemer, it points to Jesus, right? Obed fathered Jesse and Jesse fathered David. Right, this is the mic drop moment. Wait a second. Get out of town. Obed is David's grandfather. Whoa! I mean, there was no greater king than David. Right? You know the story of David. David, the shepherd boy, who would be anointed king, even though he did not have the look of a king, because God looked at the heart, not on the outward appearance. Right? He'd be delivering food to his to his brothers in the battlefield and as all of Israel was cowering in front of the giant Goliath he said who is this Philistine who defies the armies of the living God nobody stepped forward and when he did Saul said are you sure about this and he stepped forward in faith and defeated the giant he would go on to be the avenger of Israel remember Saul had killed his thousands, David his ten thousands. He was a mighty warrior who won the admiration of the royal court and he had to endure a jealous king who sought to take his life and yet God sustained his life. And then he would one day become king. He would build Israel. He would uh, give them peace from their enemies and really usher them into a golden age. And as he is rising, he wants to build a permanent home for the God of Israel. God, you have done so much for me. I want to build you a temple, a house worthy of you. And God says, thanks but no thanks, David. You have shed too much blood. You're not going to be the one to build a temple for me. You're not going to be the one to build a house for me. I will be the one who builds a house for you. Not house as in Windsor Castle, but a house as in the house of Windsor. Right? A a home where somebody from his progeny would always sit on the throne of David. And and there's even more than that. It's not just that they'll always have, like, David's last name or an heir to David. There's a special relationship that God promises to all of his sons. 2 Samuel 7, 14 and 15. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. This is what he promises to do. Every one of David's sons will have a special relationship with the Lord. Whether it's Solomon, whether it's Hezekiah, Jehoiachin—I mean, all of them will have a relationship with the Lord. Where if they obey, they're going to be blessed. Like you ever read through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, and they always make this summary assessment: You know, this king did what was right, like his father David. Or this king did what was wrong, like Rehoboam or or some other father. And how the king behaved basically determined whether or not their people will be blessed or cursed. Right? This is one of the, the, the thoughts behind Psalm 89, where in Psalm 89, 31 through 37, it's a royal psalm about a king. It says, "...if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him." Singular, notice. "...nor deal falsely with my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter my utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever." and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and a witness in the sky is faithful. Salah. Right? So there's always going to be someone on the throne of David. It's just, is he going to be a good king or a bad king? And this keeps on going. In fact, later on in the psalm, the psalmist laments that there's not a good king to be found. We're all suffering because we have terrible leadership. But there's always this residual hope that when the right son of David came along, when we finally get that worthy king, oh, life's going to be awesome. And so you fast forward to the birth of Jesus, where there's a genealogy, incidentally, that links him to being David's son. And you have to keep in mind, Israel was occupied by their enemies. Everywhere they went, there was a reminder that they are under the yoke of Roman rule. Right? I, I think about how the Ukrainians must be feeling right now. Right? You see the Russian flag where there should be a Ukrainian flag. You see Russian soldiers telling you what to do like they run the place. And you're always thinking that you just don't belong here. This belongs to us. This is our land. And so in Israel, they have the same sentiment and But then there's this man who shows up who seems to have superpowers. In Matthew 9, 27, Jesus passed from there, and two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. David, we we think that you can cure our blindness. We think that you're the son of David who has superpowers. Matthew 20, 30, And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And this was happening over and over again, and there was all this intrigue that maybe this guy who's doing all these miracles, he's the one who can kick out the Romans, and we'll get our country back. And so when they're at a, nearing the end of his ministry, And Jesus sits down with his disciples and says, Hey, I've got a question for you. Lots of people have been talking about who I am. But I want to ask you, who do you say I am? And Peter responds with, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Christ means Messiah, which refers back to David, the Anointed One. And what's fascinating is what Jesus says. He strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Keep it your secret. People don't know what to make of this information. You see, they were, he was concerned that patriotic fervor would lead them to want to make him their king. They believed that their greatest enemy was Rome, right? In Ukraine, the sentiment right now is your greatest enemy is Russia, Yeah, we might have our own geopolitical enemies, right? (laughs) Our greatest enemy is Islamic fundamentalism. But what really is our greatest enemy? It's sin, which leads to death, that is under the power of Satan. That is our greatest enemy. If Jesus is going to deliver his people, he's not going to deliver them so they'll die later on. He's going to redeem them and deliver them so that they could live forever. He wanted to redeem them from their greatest enemies, sin, death, and the devil. And the book of Ruth is all about redemption, isn't it? It's all about redeeming somebody from the curse. Naomi was was cursed by the death of people close to her. Naomi's plight, in some measure, was a response to some of her own sinful choices. And yet God in his kindness sent two people to love her into redemption. They would sacrifice their future. They would sacrifice their happiness to marry who they want to marry. They would sacrifice their own ability to pass on territory for another person. She was redeemed by Hesed, sacrificial, covenant making, loyal love. And from this union comes a son of David who will redeem his people with sacrificial, covenantal love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life that is the true deliverance and so this is where this is where Ruth gets personal when someone becomes redeemed they become part of a, a family they are brought back into the fold and we look at this genealogy and all these names that are included in this genealogy that builds up to David And then David continues on to Jesus. But the genealogy doesn't stop there, does it? Through the son of David, the genealogy expands. In Romans 8.15, Paul tells the Romans, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father." You see, if you were to keep on writing that genealogy, Joseph fathered Jesus. Jesus fathered Diane Hinkey and Joy Brooks and Rick Morgan. That is how your name makes it into the genealogy. Everyone who is redeemed by Jesus now has an inheritance and the right by adoption to participate, participate in the greatness of his kingdom. These genealogies that point to Christ point to your inclusion as well. When he looks at the book of life, maybe it's a genealogy, I don't know. But your adoption brings you into the story. And what's amazing is that by virtue of your adoption, the Hesed love that, that is so clear and prevalent in Ruth is also applicable to you. He sees you through the eyes of Hesed love because you belong to Him. John Piper shares a, the, a story where he was in a convalescent home. And he was in the elevator, and there was a very nice-looking man pushing a wheelchair. And this woman was kind of rocking back and forth, uh, mumbling, was very confused and misshapen. And he just thought, what is this nice-looking man doing with that woman you know, who obviously has lost so much? And as he pushes her out of the elevator, he says, watch your feet, sweetie pie. That's Hesed love. And that is the story of Ruth where where God looked past all of these things. He looked past your sin. He looked past your history. He looked past your failures. He looked past all of that because he, out of his hesed love, sent his son to die on the cross for you so that you could experience his Hesed love forever. So for those of you who are sad that Ruth is over, it's not over. You're part of the story, because the genealogy at the end, through Christ and your inclusion, will keep on going. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are just so grateful for the lessons of Ruth. And just the covenantal Hesed love that is so on display. The love that was experienced by Naomi has been experienced by by us. And I pray that we will um, just cherish it and seek to impart it to those in need. Father, thank you uh, for just these great, rich, wonderful truths. In Christ's name, amen.